for Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, find out about the community building that's being done by a group called Owl and Panther. Leah Britton talks with fashion journalist Gianluca Russo about his book, The Power of Plus, Inside Fashion's Size Inclusivity Revolution. Explore the ideas behind Vaud, a collaborative stage performance created by Wolf Boart and a group of U of A Bachelor of Arts theater students. And Stories That Soar presents a tale written by a local third grader called Day and Night. That's all next on Arizona Spotlight. The mission statement of the group Owl and Panther is, quote, to inspire and support refugees and society in embracing change, life, and hope through healing-centered engagement in expressive arts, community outreach, and collaboration. In pursuit of those goals, Owl and Panther works to recognize and provide a safe space for refugees and immigrants of all ages, particularly those who are escaping violence and persecution. They use art as the primary way to build bridges of communication. And I'd like to welcome Abby Hungway, Managing Director of Owl and Panther, to begin. So much has happened at Owl and Panther, and I was excited to share. Um, the biggest thing that we've been looking forward to is serving Afghan families. Uh, as you may know, we've received a lot of Afghan humanitarian parolees since July of last year. The opportunity to serve them in, in different ways is the main reason why I thought, you know, let's, let's have a conversation and we can share about that. The Pima County Public Library has been helping in the effort to welcome these people from Definitely. Afghanistan and to uh, help them find a home. Tell us how Alan Panther contributes to that same mission. Our partners at IRC reached out um, and requested programming, especially for the children. And IRC is? The International Rescue Committee. In their request, you know, at Owland Panther, our specialty is offering expressive arts programming. Mm-hmm. And immediately we were excited to, to be a part of it. And we would pretty much go there, uh, set up art activities. We partnered with the Tuso Museum of Art to offer watercolor. Uh, we would bring art supplies, have fun together. I love the idea that you share of the museum as a safe space. Absolutely. Museum is sanctuary. Uh, th- those were some of the stories that, that we discussed a number of years ago, Mark. And mm-hmm. that program continues today. We still have a museum as sanctuary at the Tusa Museum of Art. Mickey, will you please introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Metisabia Tefera, and I was born in Ethiopia. I moved down here in 2012, I believe. It was kind of overwhelming because everything is new. Um, I didn't know a lot of people. You know, it was just the family I was I have here. So when I went to Allen Panther, it was kind of everybody was, like, very welcoming. And like she said, it was mostly, like, about art. Yeah. And I was, I'm still into, like, drawing. So I was able to express whatever I felt like. 
through Island Panther, actually, I got to do a mural in the back of Woods Library, which was to this day. Every time I pass by it, you know, it just it makes me smile. Yeah. So, what did you want to say in the mural? The part that I did was like these two people holding each other, looking into the distance, and there was like fruits and animals. So it was just kind of like looking into the bright future you have in front of you. So, mm-hmm. so every time I pass by it, I look at that and. It's kind of what it reminds me. And again, like if it wasn't for Alan Panther, I wouldn't able to do that. I'm sure you feel a sense of pride about your art and oh, the yeah. art of your friends. Yeah, definitely. And even like uh, every year we had uh, where we would draw, we were able to display it at the Tucson Museum of Art and just getting to see other people looking at your works and complimenting it and asking more about it and being interested in it. That kind of like makes you feel special which has helped me a lot because with everything I do now I'm like really passionate about it and I want people to know the things that I want to do and like I said when I first arrived there they were like you can do anything you want we're here to support you with whatever you want to do which now like I want to do everything and anything that I can do (laughs) to get back to people. My name is Anna Cedar and I am from Washington State a small town called Milton, and I moved to Tucson in 1997. In 2007, I graduated from the University of Arizona with a degree in law, and I am now a practicing attorney. As a member of the board, what do you want people who have never heard of Alan Panther to know about this? First of all, Mark, I think when I hear the success stories about participants in Alan Panther, including Abby and including Mickey, I have a sense of pride in hearing that Alan Panther has fostered the development and the excitement that we hear in Mickey about um, being welcomed into the Tucson community. The reason I'm involved in Alan Panther is because I think that everything that we do and what is important goes back to the children and the way that we treat and raise the children in our community. With that, I think it's incredibly important that not just our own children, but the, that the children that come to our community are welcomed as well and nurtured, and that we have children coming to us from all over the world. And at Allen Panther, we're trying to be that sanctuary, and we can't do it without the community. Um, the programs that we do don't, don't just happen. They come from the hard work of, of everybody involved. So if we look back about a year ago when you first got actively involved, What is something that has changed your life? My perspective has broadened about refugees in our community and about the needs and the contributions and everything. I think my I guess my perspective has just changed in that I I find this work even more important and I find this programming even more important than I ever did before now that I'm actually hands-on you know, speaking to the directors and, and meeting the participants. And mm-hmm. it changes you to go to events with Alan Panther participants and to meet the children and meet families and see people who are brand new to this country and to see the smiles on their faces when they're when they're welcomed by by the people at Alan Panther and to see how excited people are to to interact. Abby, there's an opportunity coming up for people in the community to get involved. Uh, tell us about your walkathon, and if somebody's interested, what can they expect? 
We have a walkathon coming up on December 10th to commemorate International Human Rights Day. We will start registration at 7.30 at Silver Lake Park. The idea is just to come together uh, in commemoration of International Human Rights Day, uh, walk together, get to know each other a little bit more, um, you know, come on your own, come with friends, come with family, uh, and you're even welcome to join us virtually if you would like. We are encouraging people to go to go.rallyup.com forward slash O&P walkathon to register to participate. All the information about how the event is going to happen is on that site. Thanks to our guests from the Tucson chapter of Owl and Panther. You can find a link to information about the walkathon on our webpage at azpm.org. For decades, the fashion industry's disregard for designing or providing plus-size clothing has caused many women to feel neglected and excluded. Next, Arizona Spotlight assistant producer Leah Britton talks with the author of a new book who says that that trend is changing. Fashion journalist Gianluca Russo began writing about size acceptance for Teen Vogue while in college. Since then, Russo has spent the past five years of his magazine career discussing the body diversity movement in publications including GQ, Glamour, and InStyle. I had the chance to talk to him about how his new book, The Power of Plus, Inside Fashion Size Inclusivity Revolution, acts as a celebration of how far the movement has come and a roadmap for where it's headed. I wanted to make sure that I was representing as many people as possible. I think what often happens in the plus-size space and also in inclusivity conversations in general is one or two people are kind of selected as spokespeople for their entire communities. And what happens there is there's a level of tokenization and there's also a level of erasing of experiences because no one person can speak for all. So what I wanted to do here was gather a group of 80 to 100 people who could represent their individual communities. Because of course I couldn't incorporate absolutely everyone into this, but I felt by curating a group of people who represented individual communities, individual intersections, different backgrounds, that regardless of who was included, everyone could see themselves represented at one point or another through those voices. Because what I love about the body diversity space is we all have such different perspectives here. It's a type of marginalization, a type of intersection that can come from any background, any type of person. And so there's so much to talk about. We're all kind of impacted differently, but we have this common message. And so I wanted to show how we can weave all of our very different experiences together with that message and how that in and of itself can impact so many people and make so many people feel represented. Now, you touch a little bit on social media, and I know social media can be a beautiful yet scary place. What are some ways you'd like to see the size inclusivity movement evolve online? Social media really helped this movement come about. If you look before the days of social media, plus as people existed, these conversations were happening, but they would die out because there was no way to keep that momentum going. Once social media entered the world... There was no denying that this woman was here and she was ready. She grew more and more vocal with the more platforms she was given. And social media was the tool that everyone was able to use to make sure designers knew that they were there and they were ready to shop. And so because of that, many people are grateful for what social media has done for plus-size fashion and for body positivity as a whole. 
I think we're at a point now where we're seeing the negative effects here and we're seeing how it can actually cause more harm. And something that was once beautiful and helpful is now giving the opposite. What I would like to see in the future is a digital landscape that is more welcoming of people of different body types, but also safer for people of different body types and people of different marginalizations and intersections as well. And I think a lot of that is asking these companies who run these digital sites to put things in practice that will protect them because the digital landscape has grown increasingly less safe for people to speak out and to even just be themselves and to post about what it's like to live their life. And so I'd like to see the tech companies in charge here really put firm measures in place to guarantee or do their best to guarantee that safety because I think everyone is in a weird spot right now where something they used to love now makes them feel bad. Um, and I think we need to be better at curating our own feeds and getting back to that and, and relying on our individual communities rather than being fed ads that promote things that make us feel bad. So I don't think social media is as great as it once was, especially when we're talking about body diversity and body image and the way that these images impact us. And I think a lot of that comes from the way that these apps are set up. And so really we need to rely and continue to demand that those changes are made so that these digital sites can really be a safe space for us. What are some ways that our listeners can contribute to making that digital space a bit more friendly for people of all sizes? I think the biggest way that people can do that is by speaking out. I think so often we think our voice no longer matters because there's so many voices online all at once. But really, on an individual level, we each can have an impact because one plus one continues to build until we see that change we need. And so it is just about speaking out. It's about being part of the conversation, contributing, engaging. When you see something, call that out, make a change, report something. There's so many things we can do on an individual level that take only a few seconds of our time that have the biggest impact. Because even if you as one person can take down one bad Instagram you post, uh, Instagram post you see that is having a negative effect, you're saving so many people from seeing that and then taking that negative message into themselves. And so we really can have an impact. And I think what I wanted to show with this book and with all my work is that so much of this is community oriented. We each can have a role in that community. And so that's what I want people to really understand here is that your voice does matter. Even in a world that feels like everyone's screaming, everyone's talking, your voice still matters. There's still a place for it. And you can have such a big impact even by doing small steps forward. What is one thing that you hope readers take away after reading The Power of Plus? I really want readers, of course, to feel inspired. I want them to understand that plus size fashion is about infinitely more than clothing. This is a transformative aspect of life because when you have been denied clothing for so long, you never get the opportunity to figure out who you are and how you can use fashion as a form of self-expression. So when that finally happens, when a designer finally makes clothes in their size, when you finally have the option to go into a mall and try things on alongside your friends of different sizes, you are able to step into who you are. Plus size fashion is so transformative on a personal level and so emotional. That's what I want people to understand in this book. It's about so much more than clothing here. So I want people to feel inspired. I want them to feel motivated to continue to push forward because our fight is not done. It's far from over. We've come so far in the past 30 years, and it's so incredible to be able to celebrate that and all the wonderful people who have contributed to it. But our work isn't done. There's so much further to go. 
and we can do that together as a community. And that's what I want people to feel when they read this book. Leah Britton talked with journalist Gianluca Russo about the book Power of Plus, Inside Fashion's Size Inclusivity Revolution, published by Chicago Review Press. In the earliest decades of the 20th century, vaudeville was the most popular form of entertainment in America. A bizarre and often garish mix of the best and worst of culture, vaudeville strived to have something for every brow, whether high or low. Vaud is a new production at the U of A's Tornabeen Theater that hopes to capture the flavor of this energetic variety format through a bold new collaboration. Joining me now are Bachelor of Arts students and co-creators Sam Lewis and Ellie Seward, along with co-creator and director Wolf Boart, to tell us more. We titled the piece Vaud, and there's 15 artists, uh, and we came together. We had 28 days to write, create, block, and stage the production. So what we did is we looked at vaudeville, which is a very you know exciting and eclectic and mixed up time of uh, almost like TikTok, like lots of different images. And we decided to tell our own stories uh, that were important to us. So we took the concept of vaudeville and we created a story about a person coming from a faraway place and finding a home in theater because I think a lot of us could identify with that. And I keep thinking of it as a visual poem stacked with image upon image upon image that eventually has its own logic and own narrative. Sam, were you very familiar with the history of vaudeville and that era of Americana? Um, Not necessarily. Um, I wasn't introduced into vaudeville until we started this process, but I have heard different stories about it. Like um, I've heard of Burt Williams, but I heard he was a black man doing blackface around that time period. So that was, I found that pretty extreme, but it was interesting, you know, at the same time. Wolf just made the observation that there's almost a TikTok quality to having a bunch of acts stacked on top of each other. I knew coming in that this would be a challenge because we all have a cast full of talented people. So we just had to see like, what fit and what didn't. But as the process went on, you know, we got the hang of things and this is gonna be a very amazing show. And what would you like to say about being introduced to the concept of vaudeville? I was aware of the influences it had on musical theater, um, but I hadn't dove into it. And being a part of the show was really interesting to figure out so much about that history and things that survived, things that didn't. Personally, in the cast, I play a clown, and I'm really interested in clown work. So that was uh, that was really fun to explore that in the vaudeville era. And when you put on your clown outfit, do you wear makeup? Oh, uh, we'll figure that out. It's dress rehearsal. <laughs> okay. I get to let loose a lot with my physicality. Um, it's a really nice opportunity to let my body do the acting rather than my voice. So, Sam, have you had to learn uh, any new skills in the last 28 days to take to the stage? Yep. Um, I'm not too experienced with dance, but I have a dance number in the play, and that's going to be very, very interesting. So I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, broadcasting that to the audience. Yeah. Did you find the allotted amount of time daunting? 
it definitely helped propel me because I'm the type of person that's always up for a challenge. So to have to do that amount of work in you know a short amount of time, that just added fuel for me. In terms of research for this production, uh, from what I know about you, Wolf, you've been preparing for this for a very long time. Well, a number of years ago, a guy and his partner named Frank Cullen gave a big body of, of archival material, mostly playbills and adverts and different things, of vaudeville material to the special collections here at the University of Arizona. I believe Professor David Soren yes. was involved with that. Yeah. I interviewed him right around that time. That was years ago. Yeah, and that really interested me. I wrote to Frank and said, on behalf of Tucson, Arizona, and the University of Arizona, I take it upon myself uh, to thank you. And he was lovely, and I, I, I said I always wanted to do something with this material, and the opportunity came up. And I thought, what a great way to, to sort of filter it through students and see what they, what they come up with. Yeah. is not here right now, and I understand he's, he has no plans to listen to this recording at, at any stage. So what's something you can tell me about working with him as a director? Uh, what's something you think you're going to carry from this production forward? Working with Wolf has been a privilege. I, this is my first show here at um, University of Arizona, and I was really nervous that it was a devised piece, but he did such a wonderful job of taking everyone's individual ideas and crafting it together in a flowing story that has moments where you laugh, moments where it's more emotional. Um, I've learned a lot, and especially because I'm trying to perfect kind of my physicality and I'm still in a learning place when it comes to my acting, it's, it's been really wonderful. And Sam, same question, since Wolf can't hear us, what's something you'd like to share with us about his style and something you're going to take with you in your future? I actually really enjoy working with Wolf. One thing in particular is that I notice is that he is like someone that's super into like results. He acknowledges that a lot of the work is going to be hard. He lets us know he doesn't like sugarcoat anything. And as practice goes on and all of that, we actually came up with some great work and we wouldn't have been able to do it without him because he performs himself and a lot of the stunts that are done, he's capable of doing himself. So he was able to show us and lead the way, you know. Now that you're back with us, um, what's something that you hope an audience member might take home with them after seeing a performance of Vaud? Vaud is about um, family and finding a home, and I really think that it's especially especially these days it's it's important to find that we've been in a pandemic, we've been locked up, and we're coming out, we're blossoming, and this piece has that built into it. It's a it's a constant discovery of self and your adopted families. A theater has done that for me, and I think with a lot of these students, the theater is also a home. There's melancholy moments, there's ups and downs, but it's ultimately a feel-good piece, and so ultimately you want the audience to have a good time and, and come away with a, a sense of well-being and a good laugh. So. Would you uh, like to give me a stage laugh as a group? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> 
Wolf Boart, Sam Lewis, and Ellie Seward, along with their team of collaborators from the U of A Theater Studies Program, present VAUD from December 1st through the 4th at the Tornabeen Theater on campus. There's a post-show discussion following Friday evening's performance and a matinee show on Saturday. You can find more information on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. The local nonprofit Literacy Connects sponsors a group of performers and musicians called Stories That Soar. Their mission is to help young writers realize the power of bringing their stories to life for the stage, video, or radio. Next, we'll hear a thoughtful meditation on the differences between day and night. It's written by Vicente, a third grader at Blenman Elementary. The day and night. The night. The night is when the sun goes down and the night comes up. As a kid, I did not like the night. It scared me. But now I realize the night is not as bad as I thought. It's actually pretty cool. The night is so peaceful. You get to see the night animals like owls, coyotes, bunnies, and snakes. The night. After the night is the day. The day. In the day, the sun comes out and the fun starts. Like playing with your friends. And it's actually safer in the day. Okay, you can cross now. I think the day is adventurous. Like the night is cool, but in the day, you can do a lot more. Like play games and play with friends and go to school and draw and read a book. The day. Day and night. The end. Day and Night was written by Vicente, a third grader at Blenman Elementary in TUSD. It was produced by the team at Stories That Soar and narrated by Carlitos, a middle schooler from their Youth Center program. Aspiring student-age writers can submit stories to the Magic Box Story Portal now at literacyconnects.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. Our news director is Christopher Conover. Music by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance by Leah Britton. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.